It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Unless there are radical transformations in the socio-economical and educational structure of this country, the black poor, the percentage of black people who are in poverty will stay the same. It's a self-perpetuating cycle. Henry Louis Gates Jr. is a Harvard professor and hosts the PBS documentary series, Black in America Since MLK and Still I Rise. It's a look back at the last 50 years of African American history. In today's show, Gates poses the question, what would Dr. Martin Luther King say about today's America? Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events held by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. The path of black Americans over the last five decades is a paradox. Successful stars like Oprah and Michael Jordan have emerged, along with the country's first black president. Still, the number of African-American men in prison has skyrocketed, and the class divide in the black community has deepened. Henry Louis Gates talks about affirmative action, Donald Trump, and why there needs to be a massive revolution in public education. We also hear a clip from Gates's documentary and a reading of the Langston Hughes poem, Let America Be America Again. Gates is interviewed by Aspen Institute President Walter Isaacson. Gates starts by explaining that his documentary begins in 1965. What would you tell Martin Luther King if he came back? And he'd say, Walter, what's happened since I've been gone? Mm -hmm. And you'd say, hey, Dr. King, you're looking good. You know, it's mm -hmm. nice to see you again. <laughs> a lot of stuff has happened that's going to blow your mind. Um, and remember, 65 is a pivotal year because it starts with Malcolm X being assassinated. Everybody forgets that in February. Then in March, it's Pettus Bridge. And then Watts in August. And then in the fall, the first black person to star in a, a weekly drama. Who was that? Bill Cosby and I Spy. You know, I've had people say, you got to take Bill Cosby out of black history. I go, I can't take him out of black history. <laughs> But that was an amazing year that starts with Malcolm X and ends with um, I Spy. And the reason I realized in retrospect that I aspired to be a Rhodes Scholar, I was a Mellon finally, and I went to Cambridge, was because Bill Cosby was a, a Rhodes Scholar in that documentary. So we go from 1965. In the show. Yeah, yeah, in the show, sorry, in I Spy. And we go from that amazing year through the birth of affirmative action when people like me integrated historically white universities. Um, I went to Yale in 1969, one of 96 black men and women to diversify Yale. Why would I say that? Because Yale, class of 66, had six black men to graduate. Mm -hmm. The class that entered with me in 69 had 96. What were they, was there a genetic blip in the race and all of a sudden there are 90 smart black people who hadn't <laughs> existed before? <laughs> Yale had racist quotas on black people, on Jews, um, Yale even had, a, until 1963, had a, a quota on, on Roman Catholics. And guess who's in my class? Kurt Schmoke mm -hmm. became the first black uh, mayor of Baltimore. Uh, Sheila Jackson Lee, my good friend, who's congresswoman from uh, Barbara Jordan's district in Houston. Houston. And uh, a little a nerdy pre-med guy. You know, we didn't know him well. He didn't hang very much. What was his name? Mm -hmm. Ben... Uh, I can't remember him now. Yeah. Whatever happened to him? I think he uh, was in the cabinet now okay. for him. Ben Carson was, uh, and his wife Candy. We were all there at the same time. So the long and the short of it is because of affirmative action, the black middle class has doubled since Martin Luther King was killed. 
the black upper middle class has quadrupled. That's the good news. What's the bad news? The, uh, in 1970, the percentage of black children living at or beneath the poverty line, 41%. Mm -hmm. What was it the last time it was taken? Two years ago, 38%. So that we have this paradox. We have a class divide within the black community. So for some of us, it's the best of times. And for others of us, it's the worst of times. And I wanted to do a documentary charting the rise of black superstars like Oprah, Michael Jordan, Michael Jackson, um, the first black president elected twice. And on the other hand, the rise, the dramatic and pernicious rise of the black prison population, the rise in the percentage, 33 of all, 33% of all prisons in the United States are black men. Um, a, an average black man has a chance one in three Being of going to prison. And what is it for white men? One in 17. How did we get at this paradoxical situation where some of us had more, had more freedom and more wealth than any previous generation of black people ever could have imagined? And on the other hand, where there is maybe even less hope for so many black people, and what do we do about it? And before we show the clip, you were coming out of a series that won Emmys and everything else on 500 years. Yeah. So explain how that worked. Yeah, we, we started with, uh, the, uh, the Sp with Spanish Florida and the first black independent town uh, near St. Augustine, St. Augustine. Mm -hmm. And um, we, take it from, we took it from there all the way up to um, 2015. So basically we went from 1515 to 2015 and told the history of the black person in North America. And the response was amazing. Won an Emmy, won a Peabody, um, NAACP Emmy Award, which is the hardest award ever to win, as every black person in this room knows. <laughs> and so we did very well. Let's show a clip if we can. Okay, great. Over my lifetime, I've seen astonishing progress. African Americans have achieved so much in so many ways, surpassing our greatest hopes and our wildest dreams. We're visible in virtually every facet of American life. Defining its face and its voice to the world. One day when the glory comes. Yet far too many black lives are still threatened by harsh inequalities. How do we still have to march to protect our rights? 50 years ago, I thought that by now, we would have been long past all this. How did we get here? How have we come so far, and yet have so far to go? You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. Today's featured speakers are author Walter Isaacson and Henry Louis Gates Jr., or Skip Gates. He's the director of Harvard's Hutchins Center for African and African American Research. His PBS documentary series, Black in America Since MLK and Still I Rise, was released in 2016. Another episode you should check out is Race and History. 
Director of the Equal Justice Initiative, Brian Stevenson, talks about his efforts to recognize America's history of slavery. We have to change the narrative that has created the kind of smog that I think we're all... I don't think we're free in this country. I think we all breathe a kind of smog, a pollution created by a genocide that we refuse to call a genocide. Find the episode by searching Aspen Ideas to Go in Apple Podcasts. It's also listed in our show notes. Back to today's show, here's Walter Isaacson. Episode three is particularly tough because it's about the class divide within the black community, and it mirrors in some ways a class divide that also happened in that period within the white community. Mm -hmm. Tell me how you now wrestle with this notion of both race and class. Well, we, tend, we, we use metaphors, and many black scholars, my, many of my friends in this audience, and they know that we use a metaphor for black America as the black community. That community is comprised of 42 million people. There are far more black Americans than all the people in Canada. But we don't think of that. Mm -hmm. You know, black America is a country, Martin Delaney in 1852, I, I believe, said that um, black America was a nation within a nation. And we've, all, we've always had class fissures. Even under the slave regime, we had, you know, famously class um, house oh, Negroes sure. and field Negroes. And we, then we have mulattoes. You know, a, a funny thing about, you know, my my um, mainstay on PBS is Finding Your Roots. And one of the most surprising things that we've learned from the DNA component of Finding Your Roots is that um, the three DNA companies that we use have never tested an African-American. At this point, I probably should say rarely, but as of a year ago, they had never tested an African-American who was 100% black. No matter how phenotypically African or Negroid, as they used to say, any black person you might know, they have a significant amount of white ancestry. Why? Because of slavery and because of rape or cajoled sexuality, or sometimes voluntary sexual, sexual relations across the, the color line. So that, and that produced the mulatto class, and you know, no one knows this better than you. We were talking about it last night at dinner, of um, the, the uh, Jean de Couleur, yeah. the uh, men of color and women of color in, in New Orleans, who all know that. We even had black slave owners. We know that too. So, uh, but still, under segregation, all blacks, no matter what your class, were equal before the law. So if you have a law that says all blacks shall or all blacks shan't, it didn't matter if you were a doctor or if you were a janitor, you couldn't sit down at Woolworths. You couldn't stay in a hotel. You couldn't go to your alma mater, Harvard. You see what I mean? Um, but wait, let's go back real quick because okay. that was not the case until Plessy. Yeah, it was a very 18, strong race line gets drawn then. In then 1896, in fact, the next documentary that we're doing for PBS is Reconstruction and the Birth of Jim Crow. And if you think about it, it's a mirror for what just happened to us. I know many of you looked at those clips and thought, God, look how young Barack looked. And that was a thousand years ago. You know, America has changed. Changed what? To elect Donald Trump? Wow, what a change. Nobody could even imagine what has happened to our country when we saw that inauguration. I was there freezing my buns off. It was too. very cold. And the reason that Reconstruction and Redemption, as it's properly called, or the birth of Jim Crow, is an analog to what's just happened, is that we had 11 years of maximum black freedom between um, 1866 and 1877, followed by the rollback of Reconstruction, which gave birth to Jim Crow. And Jim Crow laws were invented starting in the 1890s with the Separate Car Act in Louisiana, and it culminated 
its apex was Plessy v. Ferguson, which is 1896. And Plessy, Ferguson. as you know, was an upper class, very light skinned. He didn't even uh, look white. Octoroon. Yeah. And nobody would have drawn that color line, but then the Supreme Court does. Yeah, the Supreme Court does, and did until we had the Civil Rights yeah. Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65, and then Loving in 67. Right. So that we, it took all those years and to. And Brown v. I mean, and Brown v. Board. Yeah, which started the whole thing off. But. Um, so it's very important to trace that period in, in American history from the Emancipation Proclamation, really, until 1915, certainly through Plessy. Can you do, as sort of a historian, uh, a thought experiment, which is what would have happened if Plessy had gone the other way and we hadn't drawn a legal color line? Oh, my God, wouldn't it have been great? Oh, I, and you have to add one more thing. 40 acres and a mule. Right. What would happen? The most radical thing that could have happened in the history of the United States, other than giving women the right to vote, would have been redistributing land of the planter class in the South and giving the disenfranchised non-citizens, the slaves, their acreage. Property always was, was related to freedom and rights in the United States. You know this, who could vote at first? White males who had property and who couldn't vote, people who didn't have property. So, you know, we didn't have property by and large and that was the way that it was. Um, so radical redistribution of land would have been the most radical thing to happen. And then to have the rights of people of color affirmed, well, they were in the Reconstruction Acts, mm -hmm. the 13th, um, 14th and 15th Amendments, and then that was all taken away by the Supreme Court, if, and ultimately by Plessy. If that could have been reaffirmed, then we might have seen a normal class distribution within the black community. That's the best that we can um, um, uh, hope for. Can't have 42 million black Americans all living in Aspen. You know, that's not going to happen. So you got to have all we want. I think that what we aspire to, many of us, is to have the percentage of black people in the working class the same as white people in the working class, and white and black people in the middle class, and white and black people in the upper class. And we certainly do not have that. And it's going the opposite way, it's right? It's going the opposite What's way. What's causing the widening of this divide? What's going, it's the shrinking of the pie. Affirmative, it was easy to support affirmative action when I was applying to Yale because we had guns and butter, remember that? We were going to solve problems. We used to think that poverty was like a medical condition that could be treated with drugs. Lyndon Johnson thought that, MLK thought that, mm -hmm. um, Bobby Kennedy thought that. We didn't realize that it was structural. People on the left realized that it was structural, but the, most of us in the liberal Democratic Center didn't, didn't, or the Republican Center, and at the time there was a Republican left and center, um, we didn't, people, if they realized that they didn't admit it, that it was a structural part of American capitalism. So you're not gonna blow up the system and change it. What system could be better? What we have to do is reform it. And I think that the reason, I'm a West Virginian and many of you know that. My family has lived, my fourth great grandparents lived 18 miles on three, three sets of my fourth great grandparents lived 18 miles from where I was born. And they, were, they lived in the 18th century. They were born 1715, 1760. They all knew each other and they intermarried, right? I don't think that's true for anybody else. Um, in this room. So I grew up in West Virginia, that well-known center of black culture and history. <laughs> and every year when we screen, we have a big screening party for our new, the new seasons of Finding Your Roots or our new black history series in New York. And I reserve seven seats for these women 
who went to school with me for 12 years, I met them on the first day of school in first grade. Uh, it's overwhelmingly white town. It's an Irish-Italian paper mill town. So seven of the women are uh, white, and one of them uh, is black. Seven of them last summer told me they were going to vote for Donald Trump, and he was going to be the next president of the United States. They come to our house on Martha's Vineyard to stay for five days, and we've stayed in touch. You know, it was great. And they told me last summer, and Ken Burns and I, my good friend Ken, the king of, of documentary storytelling, we did a, a five-city tour on race two years ago. And I told him, stop underestimating this Donald Trump, because my friends at home were telling me something different than the narrative that my friends at Harvard Square were telling each other, which is Hillary was about to be, uh, undergo a coronation. Why? Because everybody wants um, a magic transformation back to the days when we lived in Piedmont, West Virginia, and our parents worked at the paper mill, and we were going to go to college, and that was a sign of generational success. You worked in the uh, labor part of the mill, then you got a job in the craft part of the mill. You made a lot more money per hour. Then you sent your kids to college. They became doctors or lawyers or whatever. And then we all came back and lived in Piedmont. I was going to marry the girl named Brenda Kimmel, was the, the girl I fell in love with in first grade. Right? Um, that world is over, but Donald Trump has convinced people particularly in places like West Virginia, which was, along with Massachusetts, the most democratic state in the union until Barack ran. Even my friend said, no, no, we can't be going there. <laughs> but they loved... But in the days of Bobby Kennedy. Yeah, they loved Bobby Kennedy, and they loved Bill. But with Hillary, no way. Because Donald Trump gave them this illusion of uh, being able to go back in the time machine to a world that is gone, which is never, ever going to come back. Well, and I'm, I'm worried about, or fascinated by... What's going to happen? When, how long is it going to take for these people to realize that they were sold a bill of goods? That, it, that the mills aren't coming back in Piedmont, the coal fields in southern West Virginia, the steel mills in Pittsburgh, where, by the way, where I grew up is halfway between Pittsburgh and D.C. So it was a big um, agricultural area in West Virginia, but between industrial areas. Mm -hmm. That world is gone, and a lot of people wouldn't move, and they still, um, they still live there. So class has become... Um, I think more important than any other single factor to white people, and that wasn't true before. You can listen to Aspen Ideas To Go on Google Play, Sirius XM's Insight Channel, aspenideas.org, or Apple Podcasts. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Here are a few we've received. Traveling RPH wrote, great thought-provoking discussion on timely issues. Mighty Momo says, I love these lectures. While TED Talks can be good, Aspen Ideas To Go goes deeper into subjects and allows for some interesting conversations to come up. Leave us a review and we may read yours during the podcast. Just head to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and let us know what you think. Here's the rest of today's conversation. Walter Isaacson. And do you think that there's a correlation between the widening class divide among white people and the widening class divide among blacks? It's the same system. Of course, it's a, there's a correlation. We're all suffering from the same failure to adapt to a 21st century, a highly technological world economy, where skills you have to be trained for skills that are going to equip you for a meaningful economic role in that world, the, the world that... The, the world of nostalgia that we fantasize about is gone. I liked um, Astro's 
um, I think Astro it was Teller, yeah. Astro Teller yesterday was talking about, even the, my brother's a dentist, third generation dentist in our collective extended Gates family. And he said, I was amazed he used that example. He said, you can't even go to dental school and be a dentist and then rest on your laurels for the rest of your life. And Tom Friedman's book said, every five years we're gonna have um, um, new jobs. How do we f reform the school system? Mm -hmm. How that would, you want to know the one, I know this is one of your questions, what would you, I recommend? Mm -hmm. We have to have a massive revolution in public education in the United States. That is the only thing that's going to save us. The only thing. And what would you do in public education? Well, first of all, instead of busing, I never was a fan of busing, but instead of busing, why? Because I grew up in the country where people were busing, it was really dangerous on little narrow roads and in the snow. So I had my own traumas about that. <laughs> which is really irrelevant if you, I guess we live in Boston or New York. But what we need to do is not bust black bodies of white schools and white bodies of black schools, bust the dollars from the rich school districts to the poor districts, and th that will save, we need to allocate the same amount of money per student per school district. That is the only way that you can do it. Now, and I think, and have, um, like what do they call it when, when you, hardship pay for, for talented, motivated teachers who work in the worst school districts. That's what we have to do. Um, you mentioned earlier, and I may not have heard it right, so you said one of the reasons the divide is widening, a class divide, is partly the affirmative action being contracted, is that yes. what you Yes, affirmative action. The doors opened and let some of us in. And Alani Guinier, my, as you know, a friend of yours, my colleague at the Harvard Law School, said affirmative action was a class escalator. So it integrated, diversified institutions like this. Mm -hmm. You could see the amount of color and the number of women in a room like this. 50 years ago, wouldn't have, we wouldn't have been here. Women wouldn't have been represented in such dramatic numbers, and certainly people of color wouldn't. But look at Baki. Almost as soon as we got historic, unprecedented numbers of people of color at historically white schools, as I call them, like Harvard and Yale, Harvard. The door slammed. Um, they said, okay, this is enough, and we're gonna freeze that number, right? Because there is not an infinite um, uh, supply of the pie to be redistributed. So, everybody, so the door slammed and everyone was left behind. What else happened? Simultaneously, while we were going to Yale and Harvard, uh, jobs were disappearing from the cities. So that the traditional way of moving from the working class to middle class was through a factory. That work disappeared and went south, and then it went south of the border, and then it went to China or wherever, you know, all, all kind of jobs. So you had people who were stuck, and then the schools fell apart. The tax base fell apart. Black mayors were elected, that was good. We had Richard Hatcher, right? We had Andy Young. We had Tom Bradley. But the, the tax base <laughs> fell apart because the white people moved to the suburb. All these factors were happening simultaneously. And how did crime fit into that, the rise of crime in the cities? Uh, C-R-A-C-K, crack, and then the double standard for penalizing black people who possess certain forms of cocaine. So if you had crack cocaine, um, you were mandatory drug sentences. If you were a white guy just doing cocaine at a party, you know, you get a hand slap. Um, and that was a racist um, uh, interpretation of the law. And that led to an unprecedented number, a number that should be repugnant to everybody in this room and everybody in this country. 33% of the of prison population is comprised of black males. One in three black men, one in three, will go to jail. 
Uh, that's ridiculous. That's horrible, as opposed, as I said earlier, to one in 17 white men. So that we have this permanent class of disenfranchised people tied to the prison system. It's horrific. But yet we've taken it for granted. We've become inured to it. That's another thing. King would have had a heart attack over that. That didn't exist. And we had 100 and, I think, you know, the fact checker. Who was the woman who spoke from the Atlantic yesterday? I know she was great, yeah. Yeah, she did. I brought a file for facts. Yeah. In case she was here, I could get them right. I think in 1970, we had about 140,000 black prisoners. Now we have 830,000. That's Incredible, and it's, it's ridiculous. But one of the themes in episode three, and I think two, is uh, the blacks who are making it, either affirmative action or uh, economically making it, integration allows them to leave behind sure. others, and the people left behind no longer had the structures and role models before. This is William Julius Wilson's thesis, that in addition to the disappearance of jobs was the disappearance of the black middle class. Stable social institutions like the church, the Elks, the Links. You know, you'd see Dr. Jones walking down this, Dr. Carson walking to work down the street in Baltimore going to Johns Hopkins. Now, now you won't. Um, so that's changed too. And it's left behind disempowered, disenfranchised people um, whose sons and fathers are gone, or sons will go to jail. The fathers are in jail, in prison. Uh, the schools are. Hopeless, would you have been the proud, you've just finished the brilliant um, study of Da Vinci. As you told me last night, the genius of geniuses. Mm -hmm. um, would you finish that if you'd grown up in one of these schools? Know. You know, school districts? One of these- And it's getting worse. I mean, the divide in education. And it's getting worse. So if you look at the number at Harvard, we don't have a quota, but basically the same number of black people are admitted every year. And they are all gonna do very well, without a doubt. And they're my students. But, um, you know, black communities have these two parallel classes. And many scholars in this room would say privately, probably not on this stage, that those two lines, class lines, are never going to meet unless something radical happens, unless there, unless there are radical transformations in the socioeconomical and educational structure of this country. The black poor, the percentage of black people who are in poverty will stay the same. It's a self-perpetuating cycle. And the percentage of black people in the middle class is gonna stay the same. That's unacceptable to me. That's not why Martin Luther King died. That's not why, my, why Malcolm w was killed. That's not why we did the civil rights movement. That's not why, when, look, when, we, when I was admitted to Yale, I remember my parents bought me a new car because they wanted me to be among them, my mom said. You know, didn't want us to look, you understand that. You know, Pontiac, I hope. Yeah, <laughs> Pontiac. Um, and the whole part of our black little Piedmont, West Virginia, came out to wish me goodbye. Skippy. They said, good, good luck, Skippy. You represent the race. And you know what they said? But they said, if they don't treat you right up there, come on home. Come on home. You know, that was a community, man. That's the way it was. And I knew that my performance at Yale, it was enabling for me, some people have written like Claude Steele writes about stereotype, stereotype threat and the burden of representation. For me, it was empowering. But it was, what I'm trying to say is acquire, uh, uh, attainment was a, um, a contribution to the civil rights movement. Going to Harvard, succeeding, that was a contribution to the civil rights movement. Getting into law school, getting into med school. 
that you were representing the race. You were showing racists that we were equal intellectually. You were showing that we were prepared for citizenship, that we could comport ourselves with dignity, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that burden's still on a lot of black people. Mm -hmm. They don't talk about it, but it's still there. Um, you know, one of there. the uh, poets that does that, and you've taught at oh, the yeah. Du Bois Center, uh, is Langston Hughes, because I mean, everything he does seems to echo, you know, from oh, echoes most, today. The most widely read black poet in history is Langston Hughes. And we had one of our young poets, and then Bobby McDuffie, the violinist, asked him to put a video together on his poem. I'll, I'd love great. to show it, and maybe have you comment on it. That's great. If we can. Let America be America again. Let it be the dream it used to be. Let it be the pioneer on the plain, seeking a home where he himself is free. America never was America to me. Let America be the dream the dreamers dreamed. Let it be that great strong land of love where never kings connive nor tyrants scheme that any man be crushed by one above. It never was America to me. Oh, let my land be a land where liberty is crowned with no false patriotic wreath, but opportunity is real and life is free. Equality is in the air we breathe. There's never been equality for me, nor freedom in this homeland of the free. Say, who are you that mumbles in the dark? And who are you that draws your veil across the stars? I am the poor white, fooled and pushed apart. I am the Negro bearing slavery's scars. I am the red man driven from the land. I am the immigrant clutching the hope I seek and finding only the same old stupid plan of dog eat dog of mighty crush the weak. I am the young man full of strength and hope, tangled in that ancient endless chain of profit, power, gain, of grab the land, of grab the gold, of grab the ways of satisfying need, of work the men, of take the pay, of owning everything for one's own greed. I am the farmer, bondsman to the soil. I am the worker, sold to machine. I am the Negro, servant to you all. I am the people, humble, Hungry, mean, hungry yet today despite the dream, beaten yet today. Oh, pioneers, I am the man who never got ahead, the poorest worker bartered through the years. Yet, I'm the one who dreamt our basic dream in the old world, while still a surf of kings who dreamt a dream so strong, so brave, so true, that even yet its mighty daring sings in every brick and stone and every furrow turned that's made America the land it has become. Oh, I'm the man who sailed those early seas in search of what I meant to be my home. For I'm the one who left Dark Ireland's shore and Poland's plain and England's grassy lee and torn from Black Africa's strand. I came to build a homeland of the free. The free? Who said the free? Not me. Surely not me. The millions on relief today? The millions shot down when we strike the millions who have nothing for our pay? 
For all the dreams we've dreamed, and all the songs we've sung, and all the hopes we've held, and all the flags we've hung, the millions who have nothing for our pay, except the dream that's almost dead today. Oh, let America be America again, the land that never has been yet and yet must be the land where every man is free the land that's mine the poor man's indians negroes me who made america whose sweat and blood whose faith and pain whose hand at the foundry whose plow and the rain must bring back our mighty dream again sure call me any ugly name you choose the steel of freedom does not stain from those who live like leeches on the people's lives, we must take back our land again, America. Oh yes, I say it plain, America never was America to me. And yet, I swear this oath, America will be. Out of the rack and ruin of our gangster death, the rape and rot of graft and stealth and lies, we, the people, must redeem the land. The mines, the plants, the rivers, the mountains, and the endless plain. All, all the stretch of these great green states. And make America again. Wow, that's dynamite. That's great. That's beautiful. Uh, uh, remember, that, that was written in 1935. Which is what shocks me. It's amazing. amazing. Yeah. No, that's beautiful. And look, look at all the themes that we've been talking about that are embedded in, in that, that poem. One thing that struck me particularly was that the class interests of white people, mm -hmm. working class white people, black people, who should have embraced each other. And, white, and black people tried to embrace, embrace their white working class counterparts and the structures of racism and militated against that. Why? Because that would be a formidable force. And that you got poor was, white people and poor black people agreeing, man, whoa, the, the, the rafters would shake. And that was populism from the 19, say, 30s when that poem was written? Yeah. You said 30, right? Yeah, 30s, 35. 35. To maybe the 40s and 50s, even, you know, the Huey Longs and others were poor working whites and poor working blacks together. And then the race card gets played. Yeah, but you always had the problem of, the majority of figures, you know, black people were concentrated in the states that became the Confederacy, right? And if they all voted, there would be a huge shift in power. Mm -hmm. They had the numbers if they all voted as a block, but most of the wealth was controlled by white people. I'm going back to planner, the planner economy. Do you think there's ever a possibility in the next 10, 20 years of a progressive populist movement that includes working whites and working blacks? Or poor if you blacks? tried to do it today, if you called the election today, no. Uh, Donald Trump would still win. But when the dream, the, 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 it, the utopia that Trump articulated and persuaded a significant percentage of people to believe mm -hmm. um, doesn't materialize, then what's going to happen? What about the people? back home in West Virginia. What are they going to do? They can't keep voting for politicians who have agendas that don't really represent them. They have this illusion now, it's like goober dust has been sprinkled over them, that they're going to go back to the good old days when white people are on top, blah, 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 blah. 
and all these immigrants and people wear these funny scarves around their head, they're going to go away. You know, it, it's just not going to happen. So then that will be the moment of intervention. That will be when the great leader, male or female, black or white, a co coalition, the coalition is a way to think of it. When it arises and it realizes that race and class are different aspect of uh, the same thing. But Bill Clinton, Clinton was able to pull that off. How Bill come Clinton, nobody else? Bill Clinton was able to do it because he had a tremendous amount of charisma and he actually believed that a rising tide lifts all boats. Now a lot of people turned in the black community turned against Bill Clinton because they thought that he was, and, and Barack too, that they thought that neither was um, introducing legislation that would have a disproportionate impact positively on the black community. Clinton said, no, I think the problems are class-based. So rising tide will lift all boats. And, under, and it worked. Under Bill Clinton, we had the lowest unemployment rate we had in a long, long time, the lowest child poverty rate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Things were getting much better. What happened with Clinton was Monica Lewinsky and everything, you know, the, his administration was frozen for two years. Mm -hmm. So a lot of those programs um, never materialized. And then what happened after that, you know, George W. Professor Gates. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Henry Louis Gates Jr. hosts Finding Your Roots on PBS. He's also a member of the first class that was awarded MacArthur Genius Grants in 1981 and the first African-American scholar to be awarded the National Humanities Medal. He's a trustee of the Aspen Institute. Walter Isaacson is the Institute's president and CEO. His latest book is Leonardo da Vinci. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. The Aspen Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.